Well, it's not every Sunday that I get to preach out of the Song of Solomon. And uh, I've maybe preached out of it one other time since I've been here at Wilshire. But it fits today. I, I decided when I started this series on sermons I wish I'd heard uh, when I was 16, I decided I was going to have at least one sermon on this set of topics, sex, love, and marriage. And Song of Solomon makes a lot of sense for this one. The passage that we, we had read today is a part of this longer passage here in Song of Solomon chapter 2. I, um, in the handout that you guys have, I actually used a trick that's in the English Revised Version. They actually supplied the labels for the voices. I think that in Song of Solomon it's implied that you have kind of like modern songs today. You have male singers and female singers, and occasionally you'll have a chorus come in and supply other lines. And so they actually put that in there. It's not in the text, but they put in in italics the different people who are singing. And so in chapter 2 you get a nice little interplay Going on, she starts off by saying, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. And what she means by that is that those are flowers, but they are flowers that just grow by the thousands. The rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley during springtime, they're just everywhere in Palestine. There, there, there are millions of those. And so what's she claiming about herself? She says, well, you know, okay, fine, I'm pretty, but so's a million other girls. So what does he sing back to her? You are like a lily among brambles. So is my love among the young women. In other words, nope, there's only one that looks like you to me. Good answer, dude. Good answer. And the rest of it is her, although she part of the last uh, part of it she quotes what he says to her, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He brought me to his banqueting house; his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I'm sick with love. His left hand is under my head; his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field. You do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind my wall, gazing through the window, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, I actually told my freshman class a few years ago that these next lines are maybe the best invitation to a date ever written in any literature ever. I mean, it's awesome. 3,000 years old, still works. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs. The vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. I don't think she has a choice. I think she's going out with him. What do you think? 
Yes, she is, actually. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breeze and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft mountains. It's just a beautiful song. And that's really what Song of Solomon is. It's a, it's a set of love songs uh, about what it feels like to be in the middle of romantic love, in the grip of this amazing feeling. Why is that in the Bible? Is that even appropriate for that to be in the Bible? A, a, a book about the feeling of romantic love. Well, why wouldn't that be in the Bible? Where do you think that feeling comes from? Did the devil invent love? That doesn't really sound like the kind of thing the devil would do now, does it? Love feels really good. The devil is not really into good feelings unless he can turn them into something horrible. God, as we know from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, is the one who created this set of feelings. And so I want to talk about how this works. I'm obviously talking to our teenagers, but all of these sermons, as Jeremy pointed out last week, are intended for the, for the whole church as well. Why did God create this whole ensemble of love, sex, and marriage? What was he doing when he put all that together? We know that he did, but, but what was going on? When I was a teenager, when I was 16, this whole area mainly sounded to me, when I heard it talked about in church, it mainly, mainly sounded to me like just a giant thou shalt not. I mean, that was mainly what I heard. Thou shalt not. And I, and I got that message. I mean, yeah, okay, I know what I'm not supposed to do in this area. But it really failed to register with me that with God, every one of his thou shalt nots are there to protect a bigger thou shalt. It never fails with God. Every one of his thou shalt nots are there to protect, protect and to enrich a bigger thou shalt. He's always got some good thing that he's trying to accomplish in your life whenever he says, don't do this, because if you do, that's going to mess up this that I want to give to you and I want to do with you. When he says, thou shalt not lie, it's not because lying is fun and it's going to enrich your life. It's because he's trying to create in you truthfulness and create around you truthfulness. When he says to you, don't covet, it's not because being envious all the time of other people is going to make you happy. It's because that is going to make you a sad, miserable, mean, pinched person. And he wants you to be joyful and grateful for what you have. And, and to be able to be happy when other people have things as well. And so whenever God says thou shalt not, he's trying to protect something good. So when he tells us certain restrictions about sex, love, and marriage, it's because he has something good in store in this area. And I say that because, well, this is kind of my, my starting point, our culture is deeply confused about sex, love, and marriage. Our culture is messed up 
It is deeply confused about sex, love, and marriage. We need the Word of God to teach us a better way. Our culture is weird on this subject. I mean, I would hate to be a teenager now getting the mixed messages that that you're getting, and all of us actually are bombarded by these. On the one hand, we're constantly being told, you know, you really need to respect your bodies. And on the other hand, on television, people's bodies, female and male bodies, nearly naked, are being used to sell, you know, beer and cars and window cleaner, for goodness sake. I mean, yeah, respect your bodies, but... But, you know, of course, except for marketing purposes. We're being told, oh, sexual relationships are very special. You need to reserve those for very special. And on the other hand, every comedian, every sitcom, every teen drama makes light of those and drags them through the mud. Seriously, I mean, our, our society is totally confused in the area of sex, love, and marriage. Have you ever been... I mean, this comes out the worst, actually, in marriage ceremonies now. Marriage ceremonies are so weird to us and the way we treat marriage in general. It's obvious that we don't know what we're doing anymore in marriage. Because the way our society has come to view marriage, what we say about marriage is, uh, essentially, marriage is... Um, Marriage is what you do, kind of it's the culmination of when you're really in love with somebody, you're going to get married to them. Because I guess that's what you do when you're really in love with somebody. Is that, is that what marriage is? When you're really in love with somebody, you get married? If that's what marriage is, then there's a lot of features of marriage that make no sense. Like, like if marriage is about, okay, well, I'm really in love with you, so I'm going to marry you, then... then then when we get to the marriage ceremony, we do some odd things. For instance, we say, I mean, this is supposed to be a happy occasion, right? Everybody's kind of supposed to be in a good mood. And then all the way, right in the middle of it, the preacher says, Now, do you promise to, to be with this person in sickness? And if you get poor? And, and if they get mean? Do you still promise? I mean, when did that creep in to what's supposed to be a romantic celebration of love? Well, clearly, marriage is about something much deeper than what our society says about it. Why is it that in all societies that recognize marriage, what we say is, we used to say, the old vows used to say, all my earthly goods... I thee endow. Yodi reminds me of that whenever she wants to borrow food from my plate. At you said that's one of your earthly goods right there. That that egg. Um, we used to say. Why do we say stuff like that about marriage? What what does that have to do with being in love? You know what is that? Why do we do? Because the purpose of marriage, I mean, love is obviously a part of that, but the purpose of marriage always has been, the design plan of marriage always has been much bigger than just sort of the culmination of being in love with somebody. Love is designed to create marriage. Marriage is not designed to be the anointing 
of the love relationship. If if marriage is just kind of the last thing we do when we're in love, then marriage lasts as long as love does, right? And once I'm out of love, well, of course, I'm out of marriage, too. And And that's the way our divorce courts now treat that. Once one of you feels like you're no longer in love, then the marriage is over and we'll, with the least amount of trouble, we'll dissolve that marriage and let you get on to finding another romantic entanglement. But that misunderstands what marriage is all about. That misunderstands how marriage works. Why? What, what God's design plan is, is that marriage be forever. He meant for it to be lifelong. It doesn't always work like that, we understand, but, but that was what he designed us for. He designed us for lifelong marriage. Why does it have to be lifelong? Because lifelong marriage is designed to do two things. There, there are several things, but two big things are mentioned in Scripture. To raise godly children and to teach us about God's love. To raise godly children and to teach us about God's love. Genesis chapter 1, God says, I'm going to make human beings in our image. They have two jobs. They're our image, and they're going to rule the world. That's part of being the image of God. We have done very badly at that. We don't rule, We kind of manage the world, but we manage it for our own selves. We don't really manage it for God. And the other job of human beings is what? In Genesis 1, it's right there on your study sheet. What is it? You can say it. It's Sunday morning, but I, you can still say it. I don't mind. It's right there. Be fruitful and multiply, right? It says it. Be fruitful and multiply. The job of human beings is to be fruitful and multiply. We don't live forever, us human beings. We die. And if there's no plan in God's design for how we're going to make more, more human beings, then eventually there won't be any. And marriage is God's plan for making more human beings. Not every human has to be a part of that. And there are notable and precious exceptions to that, obviously. But uh, that's the general way that we get more human beings. And marriage, lifelong marriage, turns out to be, in several ways, the best way to raise godly children. Kids do better on several vectors. We don't have time to dump all the data on this, but kids do better on several vectors if they have a mom and a dad raising them. It's easier financially. It's easier emotionally. It's actually more efficient. That's why... Cultures that have nothing to do with Christianity and the biblical religions have come up with this model time and time and time again. If you try, if the government tried to replace the family with the same number of services and the same level of care, the tax burden would absolutely cripple the economy. It just can't be done. The family is incredibly, is the most efficient way to do this. And so long-term marriage, that's what it's for, is so that kids can be raised. 
And there are several aspects of your psychology. I'm talking to the teenagers specifically. There are several aspects of the way that you are built that will help you to do that job and to, be, and to fit into that role, if that's what God has called you to. There's something deeper as well. Actually, I think that marriage teaches us about the love of God. There are two little hints about this in Scripture. Well, at least two. There are probably several others. A bunch in the Old Testament. But there are two in the New Testament that, that tell us that marriage kind of teaches us a little bit about the love of God. That this, this process of marriage where I commit to you and you commit to me and together we sort of grow into one new being, one flesh. That that process is part of the imaging of God process. And it's really interesting to me the way that works. There's an odd passage at the end of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And this isn't on your study sheet, so you may want to look over there. Uh, actually, get a pew Bible out or, or turn in your little uh, iPhone or whatever to John chapter 17. And look at verse 22 and following. It's, it's an odd, strange little passage. John 17, verse 22 and following says this, the glory that you have given me, Jesus talking about all of us, basically, everybody who ever believes in him because of the preaching or writings of the apostles. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is talking about the love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The love and unity that flows between the Trinity, human beings are supposed to begin to imitate that. That's supposed to happen within the church, and it's supposed to happen, I believe. It's one of the things that happens within marriage. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as you love me. Father, I desire... That they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God loves, God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son loves God the Spirit. The, those three are one, and, and our oneness in marriage, as well as our oneness in the church, is a reflection of that love of God. You're designed for that. Lifelong marriage, your ability to make and commit to and sustain a lifelong marriage is much bigger than the phenomenon of romantic love. It is much fuller, it's much richer, it's much deeper than the phenomenon of romantic love. And sadly, our culture has just focused on that one phenomenon. God has something better in store for you. The second point I want to make, or the question I want to answer is this. Why did God make us with such strong sex drive? Why? 
When I was a teenager, I often wondered if, if, if God wants me to be good, why did he make it so hard to be good? Why is the temptation so strong if he wants me to behave? And the answer that it took me a long time to get to is this. Every powerful thing that God gives us is powerful for good. It only becomes powerful for evil by being twisted. God gave us a powerful sex drive because there is a powerful good that comes out of it. And the powerful good that the sex drive is aimed at is lifelong marriage. The powerful sex drive that God gave us is designed to attract us and glue us. Because lifelong marriage needs both a powerful incentive and a powerful bond. Think of the sex drive as the magnet and the glue to get you to form these lifelong marriages. It's what gets you to pay attention to another person instead of focusing on yourself all the time. And it's what binds you to that person long term. It's powerful. It's strong. It's actually designed to, to create long-lasting bonds. There is actually brain chemistry built into you to, to, to create lifelong bonds. Actually, one article says that falling in love uses some of the same chemical pathways that uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder uses. Or actually, you should say it the other way around. Obsessive-compulsive disorder uses some of the same pathways that falling in love uses. There's a reason why you can't stop talk, thinking about the person that you're falling in love with. That's what those brain pathways are, are meant for. You're designed, you're attracted, you're designed to, to find that person and be attached to them. What happens if I use that very powerful urge and try to, to use it for something it's not designed for? Well, it's very powerful. It's going to do damage. It's like using hedge trimmers to try and cut your hair. It's just not going to work very well. If I try to take this very powerful sex surge and use it to kind of cheer myself up when I'm down, that's not going to do a very good job at that. If I try to use it to gain status, it's not going to do a very good job. It's kind of going to make mess of things. If I, try to, if I try to use it just to distract myself from painful circumstances in my life, it's not going to work very well for that. What it's designed for is to attract me and bind me to a person in lifelong marriage. That's what's going to work great for. The other things that people try to use it for in our culture, it just makes a mess. It just makes a mess. It's very powerful. It's powerful for that purpose. Last question. Why does romantic love feel so good or hurt so bad? Not great grammar, but good question. Because the design of romantic love is choosing or being chosen for lifelong marriage. 
That's why it feels so good and hurts so badly. Romantic love is about being that chosen one. And and there's nothing you can do to force that. The reason why romantic love hurts so badly is when you've chosen somebody, you cannot make them choose you back. That is so, so frustrating. All I can say is to remember what the design plan is. If this person doesn't choose you, there is one who will. And the goal is lifelong marriage. Don't use it to create trophies. Don't use this to, to, to rack up notches on your belt. Use this to aim towards lifelong marriage. There is somebody out there that you will choose that is going to choose you. And that's what this is designed to accomplish. And when you find yourself in love and also in God's plan, that is where happiness will be for sex, for love, and for marriage. God wants you to be happy. He designed you to take joy in this. And he always has wanted you to have joy. God wants you so much to be happy that he sent his son so that you can be saved. Jesus died so that you can live. Jesus suffered so that you wouldn't have to. And today, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that can change this morning. If you've been putting it off for whatever reason, that can change this morning. If something is holding you back, that can change this morning. Today, you can come forward and say, today I want to put Jesus Christ on in baptism. I want to be washed. I want to be buried. I want to be raised. I want to have a new life in Jesus Christ. I want to be part of the victory, not part of the defeat. I want to walk out of this building today a child of God. If you want that, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?